0: Rhett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So fishing has been used as a backdrop in literature, film, um, about finding meaning in life, coming-of-age stories, uh, you know, a river runs through it, comes to mind. But oftentimes these fishing-as-life metaphors that are made are become tropes, they're trite, they, they, and consequently they lose some of their significance. My guest today uh, wanted to write a book about fishing that's not about fishing um, to suss out different, a broad range of philosophical ideas and just life ideas without making fishing uh, trite or making it a trope. Um, And I think he did a good job with it. His name is Mark Keenwell. He is a professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto. And uh, his book is called Catch and Release, Trout Fishing and the Meaning of Life. And in this book, Mark uh, explores or shares his his growing love of trout fishing that that he developed as an adult. And explores a broad way, range of topics, including masculinity, uh, boredom, procrastination, the active versus the contemplative life, and uh, you know what we can possibly learn from fishing, or what fishing might teach us about these sorts of things. Uh, anyways, we have a fascinating conversation where we discuss fishing, manliness, uh, why style is an uh, important aspect of manliness, uh, how you know the philosophy of boredom and contemplation. And um, also the philosophy of procrastination. Uh, so it's a really in-depth, broad conversation. I think you're going to like it. If you are a fisherman, you will certainly like it. Even if you aren't an angler, you will get something out of this podcast. Give uh, you something to chew on and think about. So without further ado, Mark Kingwell, catch and release trout fishing and the meaning of life. And after you listen to the show, make sure to check out the show notes uh, for links to resources we mentioned so you can explore these topics even more at aom.is/slash kingwell. Mark Kingwell, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, So uh, I read your book, Catch and Release, really interesting book, uh, where it dovetails philosophy with fly fishing. But before we get into uh, the book, uh, can we talk a little about your background? Because you're a philosophy professor. Uh, I'm curious, what's your area of focus in your work as a philosophy professor?
1: Yeah, I'm a philosophy professor at the University of Toronto, and um, most of my academic work is in political theory. Uh, I write about uh, issues like social justice and distribution schemes and things like that. I also write a lot about uh, philosophy of art uh, and architecture. So I kind of branched out into urbanism and the built environment, but I see those also as part of a basic political theory investigation. Uh, so this, this book, the, the fishing book, is obviously off to one side from those scholarly interests.
0: Right. Uh, so I'm curious, what what caused you to write about fishing? Because you talk about in the book that as a child, you weren't really fond of fishing and that you had to be seduced by it later in life.
1: Yeah. I actually had some some early scarring experiences uh, with respect to fishing. In fact, literally scarring. Uh, there's one that I recount in the book. My My father was an avid fisherman, a spinner. And he uh, used to take uh, me and my brothers out uh, basically as helpers, uh, you know, as factotums, to, to fetch and carry things. And I remember one, one uh, trip on Prince Edward Island where we were living at the time. He was in the Air Force, and he was stationed there. And he'd forgotten his uh, tackle box in the car, so he sent me back to get it. And uh, so, you know, trying to be compliant, uh, I, I ran back and was running back to where he was uh, standing on the bank uh, of this little lake and I tripped and fell and in the process of falling uh, smashed the, tr- the tackle box open and then rolled down into this kind of ditch and as <laughs> rolled down uh, all of these you know triple double barbed hooks and, and uh, lures and various things became entangled in, in my fall and uh, I couldn't I could actually literally I remember this I couldn't move without something digging more deeply into some part of my body so I, I was lying there yelling for help, and he came over and was thoroughly disgusted by my incompetence and uh, so, <laughs> early uh, experience with fishing that didn't leave a good impression. Um, but, you know, the, the, the book is, is, is actually is a lot about my father and my brothers. Um, later in life, much later, I was actually living in New York. I was on sabbatical for my uh, teaching job here, and my younger brother uh, organized this trip uh, to go fishing in British Columbia. And we, my brothers and I, and my father all live in different cities uh, around North America. So this was a an opportunity. Our father uh, was getting older he was in his 70s, now in his 80s. Uh, so I thought, yeah, I'll make the effort and go on this trip. And even though I won't be into the fishing, I'll, you know, do it as a good son kind of thing and maybe enjoy the fellowship. And it turned out, um, and this is really what the book's about, it turned out that I, I, I love fly fishing and it's become one of the, chief joys of my, my non-working
0: life, uh, since then. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. One chapter you have is that it's called, you, you say it's fishing is stupid. Um, and it's just like bluntly said, and you also talk about how golfing is stupid too, which I thought was funny as well. But, uh, why did you think fishing was stupid? And at what point did you start thinking that it's not so stupid after all?
1: I think I thought fishing was stupid for all the reasons that most non-anglers do. And when you look at it from the outside, if you, if you remember, even once you become a keen fisherman, if you take one step back, there is something absurd about this project. And there are different kinds of stupidity. I guess I should try to uh, be analytic about it. Uh, you know, there's there's the stupidity of the kind of overbearing, um, technology-heavy bass fisherman, maybe professional, uh, which is really a kind of mastery of, of nature through the force of, of technology and aggression. And there's really no art to that. Uh, so you're catching a lot of bass, which you're not going to eat anyway, and it just it's, you weigh them and win some kind of contest. I think that strikes a lot of people as kind of stupid. Uh, but then there's the other side of it, which is on the far end of, of fly fishing, a kind of self-conscious aestheticization of the experience where, again, you're maybe fishing catch and release, so you're not going to even eat the fish. Uh, so you're doing it all as a sort of self-indulgent um, art form, uh, I guess, of some kind. And uh, I thought that was stupid, too. Uh, and even, even just the basics. You know, why are we using these these tiny pieces of tackle to, to try to land fish? Uh, even if we're going to eat them, there are surely more efficient ways of going about it. So I, I just, I, from, a, from the outsider's point of view, I just couldn't understand why people would, would find this so uh, interesting and even something that they were passionate about. Uh, but then something gets inside you, and I think it's like learning to, say, appreciate baseball if, you're, if you go from being a non-fan to being a fan or, in a different context, cricket or some, some game that isn't obviously sort of brutally appealing like um, American football or, you know, boxing or something that just has sort of crude physical appeal but in, instead depends upon a certain amount of abstraction and conceptual play. And I, I started to see... Uh, fishing in that light. And then I thought, well, this is, this is actually a natural extension of my, my day job as, as a philosopher. I mean, this is what I do, is conceptual play. And uh, so now I'm doing it um, alongside this physical activity, which is uh, sort of attenuated or fine-tuned to a point where it almost doesn't matter whether you catch the fish, it's all about the, the performance and I know that sounds kind of goofy if you're if you're not an angler, but um, I think if if there are any anglers who are hearing this, they'll uh, I think almost certainly relate to that immediately.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I mean, we've talked about how I mean, we've kind of already, you've already touched on how fishing lends itself to philosophy a bit uh, because it's sort of this combination. We can get to, into this later of contemplation but activity at the same time. But what I think is interesting is that. You, you quote these like anglers from the like 17th century books on fishing and like they very, like, they're very philosophic about uh, fishing and sometimes like esoteric even uh, it was interesting. I mean, wh- I mean, is that what, is that why fishing lends itself to philosophy is that it's both contemplative and uh, active at the same time?
1: I think that's a huge part of it. And when you look at the tradition, uh, the tradition is vast and deep of thinking and writing about fishing uh, in both western and eastern uh, philosophical and literary uh, uh, streams. You know, it's a key part of Confucian thought, for example. Uh, You see uh, Confucius often depicted as a fisherman and and the idea of of being a fisher in the Christian tradition, the fisher of men, and how the apostles were were fishermen. Uh, And then, you know, into uh, the, the period that you mentioned, In England, especially during the period of the English Civil War, Isaac Walton, who who writes uh, The Complete Angler, which is probably the most famous book about fishing, certainly in English, maybe period. And when you read The Complete Angler, what you realize is Walton sets the standard because it's not a book really about fishing, although there's plenty of fishing advice in there, Uh, some of it quite bizarre and arcane. You know, he um, he used little balls of of dough as bait, and uh, you can still see... Kids doing that, and when they're throwing a hook over a reservoir or something. But a lot of it is about uh, the changing nature of, of England. It's about politics and culture. And what you what you get with Walton, especially, is a kind of crystallization of this combination of contemplation and action. Where, yes, fishing is an activity, but it's also something that opens up a space of thought. And since you spend a lot of time, sort of, uh, not not so much waiting for things to happen, but making. Uh, a kind of opening or a clearing, in which things are possible, and in that clearing, of course, you you know the the endpoint might be crudely put, hooking a fish, but um, there's also a lot of other things going on there because after all, we're we're complex creatures and our consciousness is restless. So I think that's what started to appeal to me also. And then there are other things that um, to go back to my my baseball comparison, you know, there's a lot of repetition. Uh, especially in the cast in fly fishing, for example, and the cast itself, I r- write a lot about this in the book. The cast becomes almost uh, a performance that has its own intrinsic value as you perfect your cast. Or, or, nobody really is perfect, but as you try to get better at it. Uh, and it 's a bit like you know, taking grounders and, and throwing to first. There's a sort of you want to build up the muscle memory and make it almost a kind of thing of beauty in its own right. And that then becomes interesting at the kind of, uh, I don't know what to call it, this sort of, I don't, then like is too cliched, but sort of um, making yourself more automatic and exploring that, uh, that relationship in your own mind between reflection and automaticity uh, is, is just endlessly fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, I thought your section about the fly cast was interesting, because um, it's that, that age old question of form versus function right? Can something be both beautiful and useful at the same time?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And of course it is beautiful in the sense that uh, a better cast is a more accurate and a longer cast. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, you can get your fly where it needs to be in a very ugly way. And there, you know, there are, there are ugly casters out there, lots of them. And I'm sure I was one for a long time. I would like to think I'm a little better now. Uh, but then, then when you start to appreciate just the, the art of the cast all by itself, uh, it's not that the, the instrumentality falls away. I mean, obviously you're still trying to get the fly to, to be somewhere in particular in a certain manner, you know, especially if it's a dry fly, you want it to uh, light on the water as if it were a real insect. But the, the, um, the experience of it, the physical experience of it, is, is quite, you know, I don't know, beautiful really from the inside. And it has that quality of uh, a certain sort of, I don't know, transcendent, I guess, uh, feeling that you are you beyond trying. I think this is another kind of philosophical aspect of this, and this is more maybe Tao than Zen. If you try too hard with the cast, you'll, you'll muck it up because you'll push too hard, usually on the rod. That's one of the common errors. You have to let the cast sort of cast itself, and you're, you're the... Uh, the agent, but not the controller. And, uh, so this is very interesting as you, you know, spend a lot of time on the water working on that.
0: So you're trying not to try.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that paradoxicality, I think is really something that you can see reflected in lots of those kinds of activities. You know, that's, uh, you, you're thinking, but you try not to think too much because if you overthink or overtry, uh, that way lies disaster. And, uh, so there's a purity there, this sort of sweet spot that you're trying to get to, put yourself in, in a position to experience that. Uh, and it's, it's really quite wonderful.
0: So, Mark, you had this one section in your book that I thought was interesting. Because, um, you know, oftentimes with fishing and, or sports in general, there's this tendency to um, make analogies to life. Right. Like here's this lesson we can get from fishing to apply to our life directly, or this is what fishing represents. And sometimes we fetishize it you know, philosophically fetishize it. So how do you strike that balance between just appreciating the, you know, the fishing for what it is, you know, cause it's just fishing. Um, but at the same time making room for that, I don't know, for that intellectual play that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. This is a, this is a really interesting question. I guess maybe in a, in a way it's a meta question because when I was thinking after that first trip I mentioned to British Columbia about writing it, uh, it about the experience, I, uh, I talked to an editor uh, at um, one of the, the national papers here in Canada, the National Post. And I said, "I'm really not sure about this because isn't this, especially after a river runs through it, and you know this this vast literature of trout fishing, especially fly fishing, you know, isn't isn't it almost like an enclosed space that you can't enter without?" Falling into cliché and and the worst kinds of clichés, you know, a sort of forced significance kind of thing, where we find life lessons on the water and so on, and and she said, no, you know, look at the really good stuff, uh, and not that I I um, think that it's, my, my stuff is anywhere near this, but if you read uh, McLean or if you read Thomas McGwain, for example, uh, some of the, the John Gearack, some of the great contemporary writers about fishing. Uh, it's, it's just like anything. You know, how do you write about sex without making it seem at once cliched and overblown? How do you write about relationships, love, family? I mean, it's it's the challenge that every writer faces about every subject, really. So uh, it's back to the drawing board in a good way. And, yeah, you have to avoid all the kind of common errors of saying, well, there's there's you can immediately track fishing over to significance in this, you know, uh, whatever, anglers make better business decisions or something silly like that. Uh, and once you get past that kind of thing, then you're into the at least the interesting territory where you're challenging yourself and saying, well, you know, how do I describe in words an experience which is entirely without words and try to find some ways to convey what's interesting and beautiful about it without falling into any sort of um, you know, ham-fisted correspondence theory. And uh, I, I think that's the challenge. I mean, that's why I've I've I haven't done a lot of fishing writing since the book, but I've done some. And and each time, I try to make sure that I approach it as if for the first time, and and avoid all that that too literal kind of uh, temptation.
0: Right. So they kind of take a kick your guardian indirect approach.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess that that's
0: kind of pretty. <laughs> yeah. I guess okay. I've been reading kick guard about his indirect communication lately, so it made me think of that. Um. So I thought there was another interesting section about, you you talk about one of the writers, I think it was the same one uh, from the 17th century, talks, has like this parable between uh, a fisherman and a falconer. And I thought it was interesting, you kind of use this to explore Hegel's idea between, uh, you know, the relation between master and slave. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, in the original version, actually, there's a, um, a, a fisherman... Uh, a falconer and a hunter, and it's an extended meditation. It's become a kind of classic trope in the literature about uh, humankind's relationship to nature through these different uh, outdoor pursuits. And Isaac Walton, um, following Charles Cotton, uh, says argues persuasively that that angling is the, the most um, satisfying the superior among those three because it is the one that is freest and, and most open. So the, both the falconer and the hunter are using other animals in nature against nature. So the uh, the falconer is using the falconer, the hawk, to whatever, to bring down <clears throat> rodents or, you know, to demonstrate the fact that the hawk can be trained. And um, the training is everything in falconry. And falconry, I should say, by the way, I find fascinating and beautiful. And My younger brother, who's Responsible for these fishing trips is also a falconer, uh, and I talk about that a little bit in the book, uh, and that's quite amazing to me. But um, Walton says that the falconer and the hunter—if the hunter is using uh, dogs, as was um, traditional at the time that he was writing—nowadays hunters use, you know, weapons only. I guess uh, <clears throat> I suppose they still use retrievers. But anyway, um, in both the hunter and, and the falconer, you're using elements of control and mastery. So. The Hegelian point is, you know, famously in the Phenomenology of Spirit, Hegel writes that one of the key stages of development in consciousness is realizing that when you are the master of a slave in a, a relationship of dominance, any any relationship of dominance and submission, actually it is the, the slave position that holds the real power, because it's what defines the master as master. And therefore the master is beholden to the slave in a, in a curious way, because can only fulfill that identity insofar as the slave is present. And so that Hegel suggests that at this moment, we start to realize that these relationships of dominance and submission are are fundamentally limited, and we have to pass over into more equal um, and uh, equally recognizing forms of relationship. Uh, I mean, that might seem a bit of a stretch, but I think it's really a, a poignant insight, because insofar as we try to master things or have them do things for us, we are ourselves mastered. You know, we are tools of our own tools. And uh, there's something that that needs to be acknowledged about this and and too frequently isn't simply in the performance of of instrumental control. So whether that really means fishing is superior, I don't know. I mean, I I know lots of anglers who are kind of enthralled to their own gear. Uh, But at least, you know, there's no issue there of training something or dominating something. It's more like the, the rod and, and the line are extensions of yourself. And, and maybe there is something a little more free, a little more pure in that. But anyway, it's an occasion for, for an argument, which I think is the key point.
0: Yeah. I mean, I thought there was a, a poignant scene when you talk about how your younger brother, when he trained, tried to train his first Falcon and things were going well. And like you said, like he depended upon the Falcon to do the hunting for him or eventually. But one day the Falcon left right and like yeah it's showing that you're showing that dependence right he depended upon that falcon um, yeah
1: it was it was really i mean it's a vivid memory that i have cuz we this is hard to credit now because the suburbs around this city are so built up we used to drive out into the near countryside from our suburban townhouse and and catch these wild kestrels and he would try and train them and the first time he did it he was premature he was we were young he was i think 13 or 14 and I was 16 or 17 and uh and yeah he got into this I'm sure many falconers have a version of the story where he uh he he tried to get too much out of this bird too soon and uh it didn't return to his his fist you know with a glove um and and sort of at, at first uh perched on a power line in the backyard of our house and stood looking at him, you know, and he had the little chunk of raw meat on the glove and that's how you, you know, get the birds to come to you. And it looked and it looked and it looked and he stood out there and eventually tears were streaming down his face with <laughs> this this sense of futility because he couldn't get the bird back and eventually it flew away. And uh, it's, I mean, to me, it's just, it's, it's a great story in so many ways because it's like, can you imagine, there aren't that many places left where suburban kids can actually do that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and then this, this really deep thing about, you know, nature is nature. You know, you can overmaster, you can overpower you, you over through training the natural instincts of a wild animal, but it will always be a wild animal.
0: Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss.
1: And uh, it's something really worth remembering in that.
0: So Mark, besides taking us down paths of, with Heidegger and Hegel uh, in your book, you also talk about masculinity. In fishing and using fishing, sort of a platform to talk about that. And one section I thought was really interesting is you talk about uh, Canadian masculinity. Um, I'm American, so I have kind of my idea of masculinity, and we're not too far, you know, culturally, we're not that much different. But I'm curious, uh, what do you think are some of the differences between American manliness and Canadian manliness? Because I think a lot of people imagine Canadians like, you know, they're lumberjacks playing hockey, you know, typical manly. Things, um, but is there some kind of is there a subtle difference between the two?
1: Well, I you know I I, I make these generalizations in in a spirit of fun. I hope right, I really yeah. Of course,
0: this, it, yeah. A lot of people get too serious with this stuff, but yeah, yeah.
1: This isn't this isn't sociology, but <laughs> right.
0: uh, gender studies. But I, you right. know,
1: I I I think one of the things that struck me was um, and has has always struck me about the, the men that I know, even the most macho men that I know, is yeah, you have got this kind of lumberjack hockey player thing, and then there's this weird kind of sweetness and um, almost dandyish quality, which goes along with that. And, uh, and you hear stories about, say, Canadian soldiers in the Second World War being notoriously ferocious, but also pussycats when they were, you know, off the battlefield. And I think there's something that, that, at least in our own self-image, I think Canadians cherish this idea that, yeah, we can be as tough as nails when we want to, but basically we're all just, you know, nice guys next door. Um, plus, um, increasingly in, in recent um, years anyway, this, this um dandyish quality. So, um, you know, the, the, what we would now call lumber-sexual uh, <laughs> vision of the, the bearded hipster. Um, not that bearded hipsters aren't found everywhere. I guess they are. But uh, I don't know. They, it, it struck me. And I told a couple of stories and it tells a couple of stories in the book about exchanges between Canadian men where there's something almost... Um, homoerotic or, or uh, what's the word I want, I mean, kind of, um, I don't know, flirty, uh, which may, may sound weird, and without any loss of, of masculinity or manliness, um, taking on a different part of the spectrum of, of manly behavior, maybe. And I, I mean, I'm fascinated by this, and I know you, you guys are, because, um, you know, it's you know what is manliness? What is virility? These are really interesting questions that keep getting reframed, and uh, I think we're well beyond sort of crude notions of machismo, um, especially in current realities. When you look at, you know, partly the hipster thing, partly the you know the, the, just the changing norms of, of what it means to to look up to somebody as a male ideal. You know, Barack Obama, say, is is to many people, doesn't seem manly enough because he's not tough-talking, he's not, you know, brutal. Uh, on the other hand, for for many other people, I think he's a paragon of, of manliness because of his, his other virtues. So I think this is a really interesting debate, and, and we keep having to figure it out. There's no right. not one answer. Right?
0: Yeah, it's been going on for a long time and for centuries, oh, yeah. millennia. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. And then, yeah, going back to this kind of this dichotomy, this this tenuous balance between being virile and full of vigor, but at the same time, this dandy or fastidiousness, right? Um, I mean, there's like this point where like, you know, too much fastidiousness, like too much emphasis on your clothes or how you look and et cetera. is like, it's unseemly in men, um, for some reason. Um, even I think it could be in women as well, but I mean, why, why is that? Why do we find when men are too overconcerned with their appearance that we're like, uh, I don't know. I don't know about that.
1: Yeah. It's it's a really interesting question. I you know in, in the book I talk about um, sprezzatura, which is this great uh, concept in, in Italian history and culture, uh, especially as a as a uh, a, a norm for uh, Renaissance Italian courtiers or, or gentlemen. And sprezzatura captures something really important, and that's a, you know it's the fine carelessness or the making things that are hard look easy. Uh, it's not just high-spiritedness. It's it's more like a kind of elegance where uh, you don't call attention to what it took to execute something or to look good or whatever. You just do it, and I think a lot of a lot of people just admire that. And if uh, by contrast you are primping and preening in a way, that's to call attention to what's going on, and so that fails the test of fine carelessness. It's it's. Um, exhibiting the care rather than the careless. And I think that strikes people as pushing it in a different direction. So the, the actual self-presentation, in in one sense, might be the same, you know, two men in two beautiful suits, say. Uh, but one one wears it the way Cary Grant wears it, you know, as if he just put it on that morning and didn't think about it too much. And the other one is, you know, constantly uh, checking his cuffs to make sure they're whatever, one and a half inches below the um, the jacket sleeve and, you know, things like that. And I think that, that just strikes us as, as unseemly because it seems like you're not really, um, concerned with what you're there to be concerned with. You're not there, you know, to, to be useful, to be of service or to be present socially. Uh, you're only there kind of in your own mind. And I think maybe that's the root of this.
0: And that goes back to the, the fly cast, right? You want to make it look great but you don't want to look like you're trying too hard to make it look great.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, and I, can, I can tell you, um, among fly fishermen, watching other people cast is, is uh, as, as much a judge of character as, as anything that you can imagine. Certainly like you know, the way golfers watch each other. You know, Golf has a revelatory of character. The cast in fly fishing is exactly the same thing. Who, who is the guy who has the, you know, the perfect double haul cast but makes it look easy every single time Uh, Never calls attention to it. Who's the guy who's constantly, you know, shouting about how long the cast is, even when a long cast isn't what's required? Uh, Who's who's the duffer who, you know, somehow manages to, to toss some line out despite everything? Uh, every single person reveals themselves uh, when they, when they do that, and I think it's it's really part of the fun, actually, of being uh, you know with other people fishing.
0: Right. So yeah, it's kind of manliness. I think what you kind of hit on the book is like doing things, but then doing looking like doing them well, doing them with a little bit of flair.
1: Yeah, and I you know I, I I mean I don't think we should ever underestimate this that the pleasure in doing things well, and especially uh, if you can if you can achieve that. Really, that pinnacle of doing something well and making it look easy. I mean, really, it's the you know, there's that all of that tradition of thinking. It's not just male thinking, but it's been dominated by male voices. You know, Hemingway's *Grace Under Pressure*. Uh, you know,
0: Odysseus, right? Like or Achilles. Oh, yeah. yeah, it goes back to them.
1: Exactly. Right to be to be a clever problem solver to to uh, to get where you you're going against all obstacles to all these things, and to be stylishly engaged in that. I mean. It, we, we all strive
0: for this, I think. Yeah. So what is it about fishing that allures men, right? Like, I mean, I don't fish, I'm not a regular fisher, but I, I like the idea of fishing for some reason, like the, I don't know, the image of it and like, like fishing gear, like I don't fish, but I have, like, I can appreciate a well-stocked tackle box for some reason. I mean, what, what is it? What's going on there? Do you think?
1: Part of it, you put your finger right on it, and that is a gear. And I think we should never, once again, we should never underestimate the male fascination with gear and just the idea of having tools for specific jobs and having the right thing for the right purpose and and then to use them skillfully. You know, it's, it's the pleasure you take, whether it's yourself or somebody else. You, know, you can watch somebody, I don't know, fix a, a kitchen leak with the right tools and, and admire the skill of applying the, the tools in that, that uh, situation. Uh, or or to, you know, to extend it further, you watch soldiers fighting, for example, and the way that they use their gear and, and keep their gear in the, the condition that it has to be because their lives depend on it. Uh, there's something really intrinsic to our uh, you know, homo faber identities, our, our, our existence as, as users of tools. And so the gear itself becomes a, a big thing. And, I, you know, you, again, I think you can overdo this, uh, I recently counted how many rods I have in my collection, and, and I'm embarrassed to say it's now up to 17. And clearly, well, I think it's clear. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really need 17 different rods, but they're all different lengths, they're all different weights, and they all have specific purposes that I might one day put them to. Uh, of course, I have hundreds and hundreds of flies and reels and lines. and uh, There's something just kind of <clears throat> just fascinating and beautiful about that too. You know? And for me, when I look at my own history, the hobbies that I used to pursue, you know, I was really into scale modeling, I was really into uh, other things where you're making small objects using very, very particular kinds of skills. Uh, this just seems like a natural extension. It would be the same thing if I, you know, I, I don't do auto repair or hot rotting, but you could imagine, you know, somebody who was really into that for just the same reasons, you know, to have that well-stocked tool chest and to be able to strip down a car or an engine and create something. So I think that's really basic. Uh, the, the fishing adds, the other thing that adds, of course, is the outdoors element. And uh, that, that's pretty atavistic for us, you know, to the smell of the campfire, the lake water, the sky, seeing the, the, the rain come in over you know, the, the edge of the lake, all that stuff is really powerful, at least in, in my imagination.
0: Right. Um, so a lot of folks don't like fishing, uh, because they say it's boring. But you argue that, well, that's not such a bad thing. That's one of the appeals of, of fishing. So how can boredom be a good thing?
1: You know, I've written a lot about boredom, both uh, before and since the fishing book. And I'm really, I, I'm one of those philosophers who find boredom endlessly fascinating. Uh, you mentioned Heidegger earlier. Heidegger has one of the greatest discussions of boredom ever. Uh, and, and, you know, you can take that as a starting point. What's happening in boredom is some failure of desire. So we're not being satisfied in some way. And a, a kind of chasm opens up under our feet. And in this condition, there's, there's a possibility of a kind of existential crisis, uh, self-examination. You know, why am I bored? What is it to be bored? Why do I find the world unrewarding at this particular moment? And I think that's really deeply, profoundly indicative of, of the human condition. Uh, you know, boredom is... It's sort of really ever-present. If you think about all the things we do on a daily basis to distract ourselves from being bored, keeping ourselves occupied and stimulated, uh, what is it that we're so afraid of? It, it seems to me we're, we're afraid of those moments where we don't have anything in particular to do. We don't have a desire that's specific, but we have a desire for a desire or a wish for a desire, as um, a psychoanalyst once put it. And uh, that's that's really... Um, you know, it's something very uh, um, serious about who we are and what we're like. I mean, we're desiring machines, uh, but we we rarely reflect upon the structure of our own desires. We we spend a lot of time trying to satisfy the specific ones. So it's in those moments when we don't have a specific one, when we feel like we're at a loss, that maybe the the most uh, um, what the most serious, the most um, indicative things about us are revealed. So yeah, I'm, I'm. I think boredom is something that we should we should pay a lot more attention to. And if people think that fishing is boring, then you know, so much the better. I do say in the book, I never felt bored when I was fishing. I thought I would, but I actually didn't. And that was the first uh, indication to me that maybe this was going to be something that I was uh, passionate about. I would have welcomed it as boring, for the reasons I just said. But it turned out it wasn't boring for me.
0: So I mean, and you also talk about procrastination. Um, how is boredom and boredom and procrastination linked?
1: Well it, it, um, there's this sort of there's a little bit of technical analysis, but the basic idea is imagine that that you have two orders of desire. So the first order desires are the ones that are active. I, I you know I want something, I do something about that wanting. And then there's a second order, which is your attitude with respect to those first order desires. And in, in normal situations, those two orders are aligned. So I want something at the first order, and at the second order, I want to want that. So I'm okay with that. Right, so I, I don't know. I'm hungry. That means I want to eat something. And at the second order, it's okay to be hungry. I'm happy with being hungry because I know that you know, it's good for my body to feed itself. Uh, but then uh, sticking with, with food, suppose I have a first order desire for an ice cream cone after I just ate a huge lunch. Uh, I had the desire, but at the second order, I don't want to have it. I'd rather I didn't feel like I wanted an ice cream because I know it's bad for me at that point. It's it's unnecessary calories. So there's a conflict between first and second order. I'll extend that over, that that basic analysis. Boredom is the condition in which there's no first-order desire. I don't know what I want, but there is a second-order desire that I should have a first-order desire. So the, the conflict now is not between a desire I have that I don't want to have but rather between a desire I don't want to have I don't have but which I wish I did have yeah and and once again we feel a painful experience procrastination is an interesting thing where uh, again it's very close to boredom in some ways i don't have the first order desire to say fill out my tax return but of course i do have the second order desire that i did want to fill out my tax return because i know you know it's against the law not to File one. So all of these things have really interesting affinities, and sorting out very, very interesting but, but common experiences, according to this metric, is, is really the kind of thing that, that philosophers do. And I, it, to me, it's very interesting because it, it reflects on, on real life with, with tools that maybe can help us understand ourselves a little bit better. You know, I'm, I'm not a procrastinator, by and large, uh, but I, I, I do feel, like a lot of people, I feel first-order desires that I don't want to have. So, uh, you know, I'm not to the point of addiction, though that would be an extreme version of that, right? I I want the heroin, but I know I I shouldn't want the heroin. Uh, But we all feel different conflicts between those first and second orders. Very rare is the person whose first order desires and second order desires are consistently and constantly aligned. Um, It's much more common. I think most of us know some version of some kind of conflict or or, uh, contradiction between those orders.
0: No, that was really fascinating. And I guess then if that's the case, that most people have this conflict, it's part of just, just part of human existence. Maybe we shouldn't beat ourselves up so much about procrastinating.
1: Well, yeah, I agree with that. And in fact, like boredom, it seems to me that procrastination is rich territory for philosophical reflection, but also self-reflection. You know, why, why, if I'm a procrastinator, why am I a procrastinator? What's going on there? And then there are other, you know, I've written a lot about this, again, before and since the fishing book. Uh, Are there ways to overcome it? Well, clearly, the the most effective way to overcome procrastination is to do something else. So uh, the the philosopher John Perry has written about what he calls structured procrastination. You know, if the thing I'm supposed to be doing is filling out my taxes, there's no way in the world I'm going to be able to do that just through sheer force of will at the second order. Uh, If that were true, I would have done it already. So what I should do instead is some other useful thing for which I have no conflict. So, you know, maybe now is the time to do the laundry or the dishes or, or, you know, work in the yard because though it's not the thing I'm supposed to be doing, at at least it's a useful thing to do, and I don't have any conflict around that at the moment. And the moment I do have a conflict, you know, the moment I don't want to be working in the yard, well, maybe that's when I can sort of slide over and do my taxes. Uh, So there are lots of tricks that you can do, uh, on yourself really to, to make yourself frankly happier and less conflicted and self punishing about these, these things. So they really are basic to our, our our condition as desiring agents.
0: And how, how does this tie into fishing? Like, you know, this, this, this high-level stuff we've been talking about uh, with boredom and procrastination. Is there some way the activity of fishing itself sort of, uh, you know, solves these problems? Like it kind of cuts through them? Doesn't have the, you don't have the issues with boredom and procrastination?
1: I don't think it solves them, no. But I do think, for me anyway, and this is what I kind of hope to achieve in those parts of the book, it, it, it's an opportunity to think it through. And it's, it's like any kind of philosophical thought experiment. It uses something that is easily comprehensible, something from everyday life, to try to draw a larger conclusion. And I think, you know, most of all, uh, this, this reflection on our, our condition as desiring uh, agents or entities uh, is, is really something that a lot of the, the extant literature, especially the, you know, self-help literature and, and things that people often turn to, even the therapeutic uh, stuff uh, when people turn to these things, they often don't have, and they don't get the philosophical resources they need to to really plunge more deeply into it and have deeper insights uh, about their own problems. So, I'm not saying fishing is therapy, but um, there is something in in this this peculiar activity, non activity, this this combination of action and contemplation, that does open up this this space for thought. And for me, anyway, it, it's been very illuminating. And I, that's what I hope to share when, when writing about it.
0: Well, Mark, this has been a great conversation. And we, we scratched the surface um, of it. but We got deep in some parts. I loved it. Um, where can people find out more about your work?
1: Uh, there is a, I have um, a page on the University of Toronto Department of Philosophy website. And you can just uh, Google my name, Mark. Kingwell, K-I-N-G-W-E-L-L, uh, to get to there. And um, m- most of my books are available on Amazon.com or other online sites if people want to check out my, my written work. Uh, I should say this might be a long shot, but the um, the French translation of Catch and Release, the, the fishing book we've been talking about, is coming out this fall. So if anybody likes to read French, uh, it will be there.
0: Awesome. Well, Mark Kingwell, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Oh, a pleasure of mine. Thank you.
0: My guest today was Mark Kingwell. He's the author of the book, Catch and Release, Trout Fishing and the Meaning of Life. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And check out his other books. He's written extensively about uh, boredom and procrastination, um, really fascinating topics, The sort of the philosophy of it. You can find those on Amazon as, at, as well. And make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash Kingwell for uh, links to resources um, we mentioned throughout the show, so you can dig deeper into these topics. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That'll help uh, spread the word about the show. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.